0: The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. Church family, if you have a copy of God's Word, I wanna invite you to find your place in Mark chapter six. Mark chapter six, and this morning, we're gonna look at verses 30 through 44 at one of the most popular stories in the New Testament. Here we read of the way in which Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 people with just a small fish dinner, right? And we know the Bible here speaks of the way in which Jesus fed 5,000 people with uh, two fish and five loaves of bread. In the Greek, in case you didn't know it, that's catfish and cornbread, all right? But we won't delve too much into that today. So Mark here relates this story, and as he often does with his stories His miracles, there are uh, two different uh, meanings within the miracle. Hebrews chapter 2 teaches us that when Jesus performed miracles, they were signs and wonders. Signs in that they were intended to catch people's attention. Uh, People were supposed to look and say, wow, that's miraculous. Awesome. This is only something that God could do. It was a sign. Indicating, or excuse me, a wonder indicating that something was being done by God. But it was secondly, a sign. That is, Jesus' miracles were intended to serve as object lessons, if you will. There were lessons nested within the miracles. And the miracle before us was indeed a wonder. People should have stood in amazement and said, wow, this man must be special. He must be of God, perhaps He is God, but the miracle was also intended to be a sign. There was a built-in object lesson, something that Jesus wanted to teach through the miraculous multiplication of the fish and the bread. With that in mind, I want to speak this morning on the subject, what Jesus can give you. What Jesus can give you. This this miracle was intended, again, as a wonder, but it was also intended as a sign. It was meant to point to the fact that Jesus is God who can provide for man's needs. It was intended to show that Jesus can spiritually and physically bless people. In Jesus, you find all that you need for your soul. You find all that you need for your emotions. In Jesus, you find all that you need for life. In Jesus, you find the God who can meet your physical needs. In Jesus, you find a multitude of blessings. The story before us reminds us of the way in which Jesus gives us so much and blesses us in so many ways. I'm reminded of the psalmist who said in Psalm 103:2, my soul, bless the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. We get some stuff from Jesus. He blesses us. There are benefits in being a child of God. It is beneficial to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and follow him all the days of your life. We get some stuff from Jesus. I remember when I purchased the car that I I currently own. I've owned it for around eight years. And when I bought my car, I was looking for something economical and something small, something good on gas. Also wanted to get a a five-speed manual transmission. My first car was a five-speed, and I just like driving a five-speed for some reason. And and to do that, I had to buy the stripped-down base model. My car actually has roll down windows. So one day I was driving around town with the boys, and they said, we like your car better than mommy's. And I said, well, why is that? They said, in this car, it's neat. It's the new one where you can roll down the windows. <laughs> I thought, that's, that's, that's not the new one, boys. But anyways, so I remember when I bought the car, it really is the stripped down model. And I found it online at this dealership new in, in Lithia Springs at the Nissan dealership there. So I drove over to Lithia Springs. I was ready to buy the car and They have this thing they do at that dealership. When somebody gets a new car, they they wash the car, and then they drive it out to the front of the lot, and they have this big circle with the Nissan logo, and they park it there. They get over to the PA, and they make an announcement and say, congratulations to whoever the new car owner is. He or she has a new, and they say the model. And then they list off all the features in the car. So on this day, the the man who sold me the car, he said, congratulations. Patrick Latham, he's just bought a new Nissan Versa and it comes loaded with an AM FM radio (laughs) and a dome light. It's got a dome light. Those were the only two features. AM FM radio and a dome light. Now I'm thankful in Jesus we get so much more. He's given us according to to Paul, according to Peter, all that we need for life and godliness. Scripture promises in Philippians 4 that the Lord will meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Indeed, we get a lot from Jesus and this story about the feeding of the 5,000 instructs us in this matter. and it, it speaks of five blessings we receive from Jesus. Follow along in your listening outline if you have it there in your bulletin. Five blessings we receive from Jesus. Number one, according to this story here, this miracle, we as Christians receive spiritual rest. Spiritual rest. Look at verse number 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going And they did not even have time to eat. Notice that Jesus and his disciples were very busy. They were working very hard in great commission work. If you were to look back to Mark chapter 1, you would see that Jesus first called his disciples unto himself. And he said, follow me. He taught them what it meant to live the basic Christian life. But if you read later in Mark's gospel, prior to our text here. You'll learn that Jesus also instructed them, gave them detailed instructions on how to make disciples, on how to share the gospel and how to train other believers to follow Christ. And the disciples had gone out and witnessed in villages. They had trained people in the faith. And now they return to Jesus and they give a report. And he says to them, Come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. Notice this word here, rest. Everybody say that word rest. The original language of the text, this is a military term in the first century, was used of a Roman soldier taking leave or taking hiatus from his duties. It didn't just refer to a, a passive sleep or a period of inactivity. Instead, it's an active word that speaks of one regaining strength. In the evening in our home, we have to be intentional to plug in our phones and recharge the batteries as we sleep. And here this word speaks of one being rejuvenated or recharged, if you will. We're reminded here from the word of God that believers who are walking with Jesus, believers who are busy in Great Commission work, church members who are making disciples during the week, need time regularly, periodically to rest And to refresh, to recharge, and to be rejuvenated. Jesus here uses a a command in the original language, but he uses it in the past tense. It denotes for his disciples an action that needs to be taken with a a sense of urgency. It's as if Jesus is saying past tense, you should have done it yesterday. I command you, come away and rest and refresh yourself." Jesus here, before he feeds 5,000, gives us such important truth. You see, we are imperfect, finite people. We have physical bodies that are limited. We are not God and we are not little gods. We are humankind. Yes, the Lord has made us in his image, but he knows that we need rest. And this is a blessing that Jesus gives us through the word of God. He is not some cruel God in the sky with an unrealistic, unrelenting list of expectations. Jesus does not call you to wear yourself out in performing for him. No, he's paid your sin price. He's made you perfect in the eyes of God. Now he calls you to enjoy a relationship with him. And he says, Matthew chapter 11, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And he knows that you, as a physical being, you need regular periodic rest. This is why he gave the fourth commandment in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. And this is why he set a model for us in creation, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, when he rested on the seventh day. The Lord wants us to know that he is a God of love, and he is a God that has called us to relationship. He's not in the sky wagging his finger, expecting us to jump through hoops from him and wear ourselves out to impress him. Yes, he calls us to follow him, but he calls us to follow him within a relationship. So I ask you this morning, are you enjoying this blessing of Jesus? Do you have time for daily rest? Are you getting the sleep you need? Do you have time for spiritual rest where you come away for a while and spend time in God's word and you commune with him? Do you have time for weekly rest where you take a day to unplug and just enjoy creation and enjoy family and enjoy the spiritual things of life? Know this, Jesus wants to bless us and he's called us to rest. In a world of so much hurry and so many hobbies, make sure your family isn't overrun with busyness. In a world of so many distractions and so much self-driven living, make sure that you are unplugging from time to time. In a world of so much busyness and so many burdens, make sure that your life is marked by the rest that Jesus gives you. And know this, the Sabbath, know this, a daily quiet time or blessings from him. And if you're not availing yourself of these things, you'll so- soon become worn out. And cynical. Just last night, or this morning when I woke up, I came uh, downstairs for breakfast early, and Laura said, Wow, you're in a better mood. You're a little bit chippy last night before you went to sleep. You needed some rest. Now we know how that can happen physically, it can happen spiritually as well. Make sure, believer, along with reading the Bible, praying, coming to worship, that you obey God's command in this area and enjoy the blessings of Jesus' sweet spiritual rest. Number two, we see from this text that Jesus gives us what I would call spiritual compassion. Verse number 32, the Bible continues the story. It says, so they went away in the boat by themselves, to a remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them. Now, the, the scene is like this Jesus is teaching on uh, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and, and he has a time to debrief with his disciples. They've been ministering, working hard, serving many hours, doing the work of discipleship. And Jesus says, come away for a while, let's rest. They get in a boat and they try to cut the corner of the northwestern shore of the corner of the Sea of Galilee. They look for an alcove or a place where they can rest and they they find a a section of seashore where there's a, a wide open green pasture. It looks like a good place to rest. But the crowd's been watching Jesus out on the boat. They see, they mark where the direction he's traveling, and they run along the seashore chasing Jesus, many believe, for around five kilometers. And when Jesus and his disciples approach the seashore, as Jesus gets out of the boat and his feet dip into the water and he walks up the sand, he sees lush green grass in front of him and there are crowds of people rushing to see him. They want to see a miracle. They want to hear him teach. Some want to be touched and healed. But as they rush to Jesus on that bright, lush, green grass, and as they wear their customary white robe, in Jesus' eyes, they literally look like sheep on the hillside. They figuratively look like sheep as well because they needed spiritual leadership. And the Bible here says that Jesus had compassion on them. Everybody say that word compassion. It's an interesting word in the original language of the New Testament. It's a word that was used of the bowels or the intestines. It's used in some writings to speak of the kidneys. And here it's used to speak of this inner emotion Jesus has for all of these people who don't have the spiritual leadership they need. Now I can kind of relate to the word meaning there. A- have you ever had an emotion? Is as, as if you could feel it in your stomach, in your bowels, in your intestines. I can remember in middle school getting into a fight. I, honestly, I mean, before you, before God, my church, as a pastor, as a Christian, I did not start the fight. But I got in a fight. This kid in line, whatever reason, didn't like me. We were in line for lunch or something, and. He just hauled off and punched me right in the face. Now I remember I got so upset at being punched that before I could even retaliate, it was like I was sick to my stomach. I felt the emotions on the inside. I can remember when Laura and I met. We met at a restaurant in Marietta Schillings on the Square. And I remember after we first met, she would come back in for lunch on some occasions while I was waiting tables. I tell her, I said, you, you came in to see me. She said, I just wanted a BLT. I didn't care anything about seeing you. But I thought she came to see me. I thought she wants me to ask for her phone number. She just wanted BLT, or so she says. But anyways, I remember her coming back into that restaurant and standing, waiting for the shift to begin. There'd be nobody in the restaurant. She would come for an early lunch around 11. Now, I remember I'd see her walk through those doors, and I'd get a little bit of butterflies in the stomach. So so we know what it's like. I agree with the old Greek mindset. We think the emotions come from the heart. The Greeks believe they came from the stomach. And here Jesus is uh, spoken of having compassion. He's feeling deep sympathy, pity, empathy, love, care, and concern for these people on the hillside because they need spiritual leadership. And, oh, church, this morning, let's take a moment to bask in the sunshine of Scripture And remember the love of our God. Let's remember who Jesus is. Let's remember John 3, 16. God so loved the world. Let's remember John chapter 4. God is love. Let's hear what Mark says about Jesus' stance or disposition towards us. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, Jesus this morning has a heart of compassion towards you. Get this this morning, if you don't live in light of this truth, you'll settle for for performance-driven Christianity trying to make God happy. If you don't buy into this truth and believe it, you might settle for a sad and stale Christianity where you're constantly wondering, does he love me? Does he care for me? Here we're reminded that the Lord indeed loves us And he has an eternal compassion towards us. Every once in a while, Laura will ask me, Patrick, you know, you said you used to have butterflies in the stomach when you'd see me coming into shillings. Do you still feel that way? (laughs) Guys, be really careful when you get asked that question. Be really careful. You can know this about Jesus this morning. He still feels that way. He still feels the way towards you that he felt towards the people on this hillside. He loves you. He wants you to be in a relationship with himself. He has a plan for your life. He wants you to use you. He wants you to forever live with him in a perfect place called heaven. This text teaches us about the benefits we have in Jesus. We have spiritual compassion. Number three this morning, we have what I would call spiritual leadership. Look at verse 34, it says, Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Now it may seem that the Bible is just speaking here in reference to Jesus and the need Of the people to have spiritual leadership but there is there is the 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 language here points back hearkens back to earlier in Mark's gospel the account right before this one look in your Bible right where you are Mark chapter 6 verses 14 through 29 contains the account of a man named Herod who was king of Judea at the time and this Herod had according to Mark chapter 6 passage right before our current passage this man Herod had had John the Baptist executed and in the Jewish mind the leaders of the people the governmental leaders were regarded as the shepherds of the people so Mark here seems to be giving an intentional contrast between Jesus and Herod Herod was that ruthless leader that lust-filled leader That adulterous and immoral leader who had put away his own wife and taken his brother's wife, Philip's wife, to be his own. Herod was that ruthless leader who mercilessly taxed the people and uh, stocked his coffers off the hard work of the people of Judea. And he was a murderous tyrant, a people pleasing leader. A narcissistic leader. And Jesus, knowing this, had compassion on the people on the hillside because he knew they needed real leadership. And Mark here, we believe, employs, by speaking of Jesus as a shepherd, employs Old Testament imagery to speak of our Lord, proving that Jesus came to be the Messiah. He was God's anointed one. All the way back in Numbers 27, 17, the Torah used this type of language to speak of Jesus And the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 56, my people were like lost sheep. Their shepherds led them astray, guiding them the wrong way in the mountains. They wandered from mountain to hill. They forgot their resting place. Here, Mark shows that Jesus is the ultimate leader. He's the anointed one. He's God's chosen one, ordained before the beginning of time to come into the world and to pay for humanity's sin, but also to do much more, to give leadership throughout life and to ultimately lead people to the city of God one day in the new Jerusalem. We're reminded that Jesus is the one who provides us the spiritual leadership we need in life. I remember first becoming a Christian and having a man counsel me at First Baptist Woodstock with Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Oh, remember King Jesus isn't some aloof God up in the sky saying, oh, try to figure it out on your own. No, the Bible teaches in John fifteen sixteen 16, he saved us, but he's also given his Holy Spirit to be a guide by our side throughout life. Oh, Christian, be of good cheer and be encouraged this morning. You haven't been called to just follow a a mere cold book or code of ethics. You've been called to live in a vibrant relationship with the Lord God and his spirit is within you. If you will learn to die to self and to follow him by faith, he'll guide you. He'll direct you. He'll help you right now in that storm or that trial. He'll give you insight for living. He'll cheer you up when you need cheer. He'll convict you and correct you when you're on the wrong path. He'll be a guide by your side throughout the various seasons and struggles and setbacks of life. Just learn to listen to him by reading his word. Learn to talk to him through prayer. Learn to line up your life underneath his authority and allow him to lead you. Make King Jesus number one. Line up your life priorities with his priorities and he'll give you this spiritual leadership. He's a compassionate leader this morning who wants to lead you. How does Jesus bless us? What do we get from Jesus? Number four this morning, we see this idea that he gives us what I would call spiritual provision. Spiritual provision. The Bible continues in verse 35 if you'll look there, it says, uh, when, when it grew late, excuse me, let me find myself here in my, my Bible. That's what you get for using your phone as a Bible when you're preaching. You get a notification, you accidentally tap on it, and then you're lost. Should have brought my real Bible this morning. When it grew late, his disciples approached him. And said, this place is deserted and it is already late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. You give them something to eat. He responded. They, they said to him, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? They're speaking of about a year's wages. They know, hey, we're in a desolate place. There's not many people around here. Uh, Furthermore, there's no Chick-fil-A. There's no 7-Eleven where you can get some snacks or a quick trip. Uh, There's nothing, not a zilch. This is first century world. There's not restaurants. Uh, Markets aren't open 24-7. Even the closest village would have been a small one-horse town, and there wouldn't have been a lot available. They know there is no possibility of feeding these people. And Jesus tells them, you give them something to eat. Now, Jesus' response may seem kind of rough and rude. You give them something to eat. Jesus speaks in this way to point out the utter futility of the disciples to meet the needs of the people. They needed a sure enough miracle. And Jesus, by saying you give something to eat, is wanting to direct their attention to the fact that he alone could provide for them. So he sends the disciples away. Go find them something to eat. We can imagine the disciples walking throughout the crowd and hollering out, does anybody have any food? I have some. I have some. Wow, we got somebody with some food here this morning. Just in time. We were getting hungry, man. All right. What would you bring for us today? Two fish and five loaves of bread. All right. That looks good. Tell everybody your name. David. David. Now, that day when Jesus was feeding the 5,000, that would have been David. What do you think about that? David. (sighs) You want to tell all your friends at school to call you David instead of David? Maybe. All right. All right. So he's got some fish and are these uh, crappy from Lake Weiss? No. Lake Altoona? Hmm. <laughs> okay, right. We've well, got two fish. He's saying, I didn't sign up for all these questions. All right. Two fish and then five pieces of bread. Do you know what type of bread that is? I think it's like pita. Pita bread, that's right. I had uh, Miss Rebecca get some pita bread for this basket because we believe that would have been similar to what Jesus had. You know flat bread has been popular throughout throughout the world and so in jesus day and that the region of nazareth this was most likely they believe been some sort of flatbread that was made with the dough then flattened and grilled and uh, they believe that the common uh, pita bread that was served in jesus day was around uh, 20 inches in diameter so it's really like they're eating fish fajitas i think that's yeah. kind of pretty close to what they had but jesus had 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 five uh, loaves or five pieces of pita bread to work with and two fish. Now, a lot of people try to find symbolism here. What did the two fish represent? What did the five pieces of bread represent? The ingredients of the bread, what did they represent? We believe really there's no real representation here. It's just a small, customary meal. And the big point is here, Jesus took a little and he did a lot with it. The point here is Jesus performed a miracle, something that no one else could do. Now, some some people get hung up on this and they think, well, maybe it wasn't really a miracle. Maybe Jesus just broke off a little piece for everybody. There you go. There's a little piece for you. And he was able to break off little pieces and all 5,000 people got a little morsel on their tongue. Sure, it might have evaporated the moment it hit their tongue or disintegrated but everybody got just a little piece. no the text is real clear this was a miracle Jesus took two fish five pieces of bread and fed 5,000 people isn't that awesome David (laughs) amen y'all let David know how much you appreciate him doing that for us good job and so Jesus feeds the people he instructs them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass, Mark's gospel tells us. And that was the position of the rabbi with his students. A rabbi would normally sit in the middle and have his students sit around him in concentric circles. And Jesus does that here with 5,000 men sitting around him. And all of this was a lesson, proof that Jesus was the prophet, was the prophet of whom the prophets had spoken he was the messiah of whom the prophets had spoken ezekiel 34 23 said this i will establish over them one shepherd my servant david and he will shepherd them he will tend them himself and will be their shepherd and jesus here proves that he is the good shepherd who has come to earth to meet man and woman's physical need so know this from this miracle, Jesus loves you and he has promised to give you everything you need. He said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. You, have, you don't have a God or a savior who has left you to yourself. He has promised to bless you with all that you need. You can rest in him, trust him, and enjoy him. If he can turn two fishes and five loaves into a buffet for thousands of people, he can bring an abundance in a wasteland. He can help you when you're at your emotional wit's end or when your resources are low or when you feel lonely and left alone. The Lord can provide. This is a blessing we have in Jesus. Lastly, I want you to see a fifth blessing. Scripture here speaks of the way Jesus gives spiritual rescue. Everybody say that word rescue. Or we could say salvation or deliverance. So we continue reading in verse 41. The Bible says he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven he blessed and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. So the language is intentional. These aren't just small morsels. This is he's pumping out food. It's like a kitchen distributing meal after meal after meal. He also divided the two, fish, two fish among them all. Emphasis on everyone that was there. And everyone was ate and was satisfied. Now Mark here is using language. It's intentional. Mark wants to highlight the fact that Jesus didn't just give everyone a little bit of bread or a little piece of fish. He says everyone ate and was satisfied. It was the idea was they they walked away full. Can you imagine a man returning home that night and his wife said, well, you've been on a long journey. You want me to fix you a snack? No, I'm full, baby. I just had a fish dinner. Verse 43 says they picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. Again, Mark's trying to highlight, listen, y'all, he didn't just give everybody a little bit. It was a miracle. He fed everybody, and everybody was full. And then afterwards, we had leftovers, 12 baskets full. And then the Bible says, now those who had eaten the loaves were 5,000 men. And those who first read this gospel knew that people in that day had the custom of counting crowds according to the men, so there was likely three to five other people for every man present likely there were 15 to 25,000 people who ate from the hands of Jesus that day this is indeed a miracle I want to draw your attention to something back in verse 41 look at the language it says Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven he blessed and broke the loaves. Keen students of scripture will realize the language here is very similar to language we find elsewhere in scripture. It's very similar to language we find in fact in Mark chapter 14 verse 22. Same verbs and even nouns are used to speak in Mark 14 of the way that the Lord took bread and he took the cup. That Passover meal, the first Lord's supper and he shared it with his disciples and blessed it. And Mark seems intentional here in the original language. He wants his readers to know that there is a parallel here. And being the good shepherd for the people on the hill that day, Jesus gave a preview of how one day he would be the good shepherd on another hill. Jesus here is drawing attention to his ultimate purpose in life. He came not just to break bread and fish for people. He came to have his body broken and his blood spilled for people as well. And we're reminded from this great miracle, don't overlook it. Don't get caught up in the fish and bread and forget this ultimate meaning. We're reminded that Jesus came as the good shepherd to deal with our biggest problem. You see, all of us are finite and fallen, imperfect and sinful humans. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And we needed a good shepherd for our souls. We were separated and alienated from our Heavenly Father. And we were worthy of death and eternal separation from Him. But God loved us so much that He sent His Son Jesus as a good shepherd to live the life we could never live. God sent his son Jesus as a good shepherd to perform miracles and to prove that he was God. And God sent his son Jesus as a good shepherd to live a spotless, perfect life on behalf of imperfect people. God sent his son Jesus as a good shepherd, 100% man, 100% God. God sent his son Jesus, the good shepherd, to die on the cruel cross of Calvary On behalf of our sins. And Jesus, that good shepherd, carried the penalty of our sins away. He went down into hell and made a public proclamation, Peter tells us. And then three days later, he got up from the grave, defeating death. The Bible says whoever believes in Jesus Christ, trust in him for salvation, will be saved. Will be forgiven. Jesus is the good shepherd for our souls. He has purchased our eternal life, but he doesn't just give eternal life. He gives what we could call abundant life. Because he's a good shepherd, we have hope of life with him in the hereafter, but we have hope of life with him in the here and now as well. He has rescued us. He has delivered us. This is what Jesus has done, and this is the ultimate point of this miracle. Jesus himself talked about this in John 6 35 he said I am the bread of life no one who comes to me will ever be hungry again and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again and Jesus gave us a powerful picture of that truth on the day that he fed 5,000. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.